0: Who on earth are we? Why in heaven are we here and how to make sense of this mess of our humanness and perhaps even it. Welcome, everyone, to season two of Dawn of an Era of Well Being, where we deep dive into uplift with insight, thanks to remarkably informed guests exploring the nature of our human nature and how to better engage it. If abnormal is the new normal and perceiving is the new believing, then inner is the new outer and consciousness is our new source for healing. Yet for many it seems like anything but the dawn of an era of well-being. From pandemia to war to economic, environmental, and even democratic breakdown and more as space exploration advances at breakneck pace, all share center stage in this overheated emotional climate our species struggles to navigate. So what's going on? Well, if you look at it from the outside in, it's the same old conflictual story getting rather scary. But now we're raising the bar by raising awareness that this mess of our humanness can only be resolved from the insight out as in vision that emanates from a profound shift in perception about the world around us and within us precisely the thrust of dawn of an era of well-being podcast and insightful book i'm allison goldwyn and we're in a mighty discussion space featuring mighty voices of loving change two of whom are our esteemed co-hosts. Irvin Laszlo, a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, world-renowned philosopher and system scientist, author or co-author of over 106 books, founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest, and recipient of multiple honors and awards like the Goya Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandir of Peace Prize, and the Luxembourg Peace Prize. And Fred Sao, business leader, author, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science, chairman of the Family Business Network's Ambassador Circle, and founder of ITEA Institute and Octave Institute, fusing ancient wisdom and quantum science as a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life, mindfully lived at new levels of consciousness and freedom. And I want to mention that it was recently Irvin Laszlo's 90th birthday, so on behalf of the entire world population, Happy birthday, Irvin! Thank you. <laughs> now.
1: thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, so, okay, uh, from governance to AI and science, to media and the arts, to the environment, all roads lead back to well-being, the, the very title of the book and this program. And cultivating a relationship to consciousness will get us there. But listen, the veil is lifting as our world of post-traumatic stress disorder grapples with a new sense of vulnerability amidst converging world crises. Now, for many, this is unfamiliar, disturbing territory, especially in the West, where there's been less emphasis on personal inner development historically. But as we're awaking, stimulating, awakening that side of our nature, more and more ordinary people than we realize are having extraordinary experiences from all walks of life, cultures, ages. Perhaps the paranormal is part of the new normal. I mean, from parapsychology to auto clairvoyance to NDEs, ETs, you name it. Even science is starting to acknowledge unexplained phenomena, and it behooves us to explore this universe starting today together so that we feel less upended by experiences that seem inexplicable, to kind of ease ourselves into feeling more whole and comfortable and expand our notion of what it means to be a human and more so. So Irvin and Fred, once upon a time, early man discovered fire. Now it's a necessary and normal part of our lifestyle. In a million years from now, might our species look back at this moment as one where we discovered the divine and that that too becomes a natural element of our new paradigm? And specifically, have you, Irvin or Fred, had any personal, what we'll call esoteric experiences that you would like to share with us? I,
1: nothing that I could actually recount as something specific. It's an ongoing experience that I have. I've happened to me also today, you know. What happened earlier today was that my friends of mine called up and said that they are having a meeting at the Academy of Sciences of Hungary in, in Budapest. And, and this is also meant to be a surprise celebration of my 90th birthday, but they, they decided to tell me so I can share with them in advance if I wanted to say something. So this meeting is the day after tomorrow and I sit down and wrote something that I need to, about, want to say. I didn't have any idea to begin with. I just started writing. I just started thinking. And the experience that I had was that I had before also. Once I start with the right button, it starts a flow, and I wrote very little, just two single single space uh, sides, uh, pages, writing on what I could consider the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal for mankind, because they want to talk about the goals for mankind. A book and a project for the Club of Rome that I have headed, well, you know, in the seventies, 70s, late seventies. 70s. And I said, what is the ultimate goal? I want to recount that now. I just want to talk about the experience because it's an experience, it's pale perhaps and seems almost insignificant, but it's ongoing. Certainly, it seems uh, very pale in comparison to the fantastic experience that Eben had, that I hope we'll be talking about. And we can all know it now, but we, can, we want to discuss it. But still, it's an ongoing thing. It's as if I would be channeling uh, some ideas that, that are flowing. I don't know why it comes, but every time that I really intend on opening up and communicating, it comes. It came this morning, luckily, I, I wrote it down, I saved it carefully in <laughs> my cloud as well, and I'm sending it over to my friends in, in Budapest so they can have a look at it in advance. Anyway, so in answer to your question, I have an ongoing experience that is formidable, nothing individual is striking, but in its totality, it's something that I depend on. Call it intuition, call it insight, it's happening. And I'm glad it is happening. I'm delighted that it happens still today. <laughs> Looking forward to some experience happening while we, while we talk with Eben Alexander, one of the great pioneers of this paranormal field that is becoming normal now
0: uh oh, it's wonderful. This is a relationship. Uh, and the fact that you're acknowledging your gratitude, that this relationship is available to you is also beautiful and I think part of the whole uh, construct. Uh, today's guest, Dr. even, Eben Eben, Alexander and Karen Newell are abundantly qualified to talk about these mysterious realms and how they interplay with the dawn of an era of well-being in our day-to-day. So, After decades as a physician and teacher at Harvard Medical School and elsewhere, renowned academic neurosurgeon Dr. Evan Alexander thought he knew how the brain, mind, and consciousness worked. A transcendental near-death experience known as NDE during a week-long coma from an inexplicable brain infection radically changed all that. Memories of his life had been completely deleted, yet he awoke with memories of a fantastic odyssey deep into another realm, more real than this earthly one. Since his 2008 NDE, he has been reconciling his rich spiritual experience with contemporary physics and cosmology, that we are conscious in spite of our brain. By probing deeply into our own consciousness, we transcend the limits of the human brain and of the physical material realm. His story offers a crucial key to the understanding of reality and human consciousness. A pioneering scientist and thought leader in consciousness studies, Dr. Alexander has been a guest on Dr. Oz, Oprah, and many other media programs. His most recent book, Living in a Mindful Universe, a Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness, co-authored with Karen Newell, has garnered accolades from many scientists around the world who study the mind-body question and the nature of consciousness. His earlier books, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, and The Map of Heaven, how science, religion, and ordinary people are proving the afterlife, have collectively spent, get this, more than two years atop the New York Times and international bestseller lists. And Karen Newell, she is an innovator in the emerging field of brainwave entrainment audio meditation and co-founder of Sacred Acoustics, empowering others in their journey of self-discovery. Using Sacred Acoustics recordings, she teaches how to connect to inner God- guidance, achieve inspiration, improve wellness, and develop intuition. In her search for answers to fundamental questions, it became clear that direct experience is crucial to full understanding. To bolster her strong sense of inner knowing and alignment with her higher nature, she enrolled in a series of hands-on experiential courses to investigate and develop such skills like lucid dreaming, astral travel, telepathy, remote viewing, self-hypnosis, and different forms of energy healing. I I welcome both of you. This is a lot of territory to cover.
2: Alison, thanks so much for having us on. It's great to be here with you and Irvin and Fred.
0: Yes, thank you so much. Well, it's wonderful for us also, and it's a very ripe and rich time to be delving into this subject matter. So let me start with you, Evan. If and I'm sure people have posed this question to you before, but let's cover it once again. If this NDE is so beautiful and it was so um, profoundly life-shifting. Why don't we all want to die right now instead of clinging to life and finding new discoveries to prolong it? We've got And I I hate to bring this up, but there are suicide bombers and terrorists who use the notion of the afterlife as being the true paradise. We have cult figures in the past like Jim Jones who instigate mass suicide. So what in heaven is the reason to keep peace on earth? And can you make a solid case for wanting to remain earthbound for a little while?
2: Well, it's because this is where we get the work done. Um, What my journey showed me, very clear, very clearly, uh, and the 13, almost 14 years now since that experience working with scientists around the world, understanding the nature of reality and of consciousness and the mind-brain relationship, it's uh, really come to see the evidence supporting not only the afterlife, but reincarnation as being a huge part of our living. But I see it now kind of like breathing. Uh, and it's like the inhale is, is uh, here in this material world, and then the exhale is uh, between lives. But we process uh, the growth is really something that occurs here, and to think that we would be able to just uh, uh, you know exist as souls in an afterlife environment and never engage with this beautiful world of growth and transformation, which is the world we live in, uh, would be a great mistake. And uh, this is why, of course, homicide and suicide are are wrong from my perspective and from that of many indie ears. Taking the life of another uh, is really not justified and that includes suicide, except in cases of interminable suffering uh, with uh, certain physical illness where I believe that you know, euthanasia potentially can be supported. But by and large, uh, those who try to commit suicide, if they have any elements of an NDE and recognize the love that is here in this world for them, uh, they realize that uh, opting out through suicide was the wrong choice. And that's why if they survive that suicide attempt, uh, they generally never attempt suicide again if they got any of those elements of the NDE. And the NDE is just part of the death process. You know, people often say, oh, well, they didn't die, so it doesn't really count. Well, for example, if you look at the work of of Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R, he does a beautiful job, as Karen can attest, Uh, to talking about hospice work and how you have parallel journeys unfolding in hospice all the time that fully support these journeys that have uh, been popularized through the NDE community.
3: But but I think it's important to point out when people have a near-death experience, they typically gain a broader perspective of what precisely the problems they're having on earth might suggest. And so once gaining that broader perspective, they realize it's those problems exactly that offer these opportunities for transformation and growth. And so that's the value of staying right here in this world and going right through it. Nobody gets out of here dead. Our awareness continues, and those problems continue with you. And so no reason to escape them but to tackle them head on,
0: as daunting as they may seem. This is critical, what you're both saying, critical. And I wonder, you know, sometimes on this podcast I've asked if perhaps – life on earth, if if earth has been poorly marketed, if the human experience has been poorly marketed. I'm going to ask you both if you feel that the notion of death and even that word uh, is outdated, is an old paradigm word, because it seems that science is um, unfolding so many realms of that which has been under the, the Uh, wording consciousness, I suppose, that suggests transformation and that the notion of ending seems so finite in the Western culture. And we're going to ask Fred, of course, about his feeling, his take on the Eastern culture's perception about transcendence and transformation and death. But what do you both feel about this, the word and the notion?
3: Fortunately, in the West, we do have this Dr. Christopher Kerr that Eben just mentioned, who has been studying death in the hospice centers. And uh, what he finds is death itself is probably the most transformative process that we all go through once we reach the end of our life and transform from physical into non-material form. But one of the aspects of that death process is reviewing life here on earth. It's a natural process as people are going through that, as their body is shutting down, they start to revisit memories from their young childhood, formative memories. There's an example of uh, a cop who turns out he's a dirty cop, Eddie, and he tells his story in Dr. Christopher Kerr's book, Death is But a Dream. And it turns out he was, uh, had trouble with infidelity. He had trouble with alcohol abuse. He would plant evidence on suspects who were innocent. He would beat them up, all those things that you hear about. And he had to kind of revisit all of those aspects. And he was a little bit afraid of what might happen when he died because of all of that. But as he went through all of these horrific nightmares, at the same time, he was undergoing this transformation. And he knew that everything he had gone through was for a purpose. There were people on both sides who needed these experiences and need is a different... uh, kind of word from that grander perspective when you realize when you hurt another you're hurting yourself how best to learn that but go through that process and very often those people who are being hurt are in on this they understand that they're playing a role for others and so The death process is absolutely a point of transformation, but it's also a point of looking back at your life. And mostly, Eddie is one example of the horrific, but most of these people are having beautiful, loving experiences, reattaching to the loved ones, those most important loving relationships they had throughout life. And these memories, they're like, lived experiences they're not like regular memories or dreams we might have and these transform into then visits from deceased relatives those who were connected most closely and they show up and they guide you gently to this other realm but again part of that process is realizing how important the life you just led then guides you into this other realm on yet another aspect of this journey. And it
2: also emphasizes the connectedness of our souls—that we're all in this together. It's a process of mutual kind of growth and transformation. We're all here to participate in this learning and teaching process, and it necessarily involves programmed forgetting. Uh, you know the. Uh, If you go to uvadops.org, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, you'll find that they, over six decades, scientifically studied more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation. But what Dr. Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker will tell you about those children's memories, if you you have to harvest them before age five or six because they're natural processes, programmed forgetting as I call it, uh, that uh, basically makes it so that as adults, we don't have contact with those memories of tween lives and past lives, not so readily, but they can be uh, accessed through meditation, through hypnosis, uh, through um an NDE, what have you. Uh, but it's really kind of this deeper understanding of our relationships to others. And of course, the the true uh, hallmark across all cultures of NDEs Is encountering souls of departed loved ones. That goes across all cultures and belief systems back thousands of years. Uh, And what it shows is this continuity of our connection with loved ones. That when the physical body dies, it's not the end of their soul, and it's not the end of our soul connections. And of course, in life reviews, uh, many of those departed souls come back uh, as part of the vision that we have of course correction of the things that we've done right and wrong in our life, and right and wrong is really just hewing to uh, that love, uh, kindness, and compassion as being the most ideal uh, pathway forward. Uh, And that's really the lesson that I think NDEs are here to bring to this world today not just what happens when we die, but far more importantly, how do we make choices about dealing with ourselves and others every moment in this life? How do we properly reflect our understanding of our relationship with the universe, which can be greatly enhanced through knowledge of, of NDEs and through personal meditation, deep uh, centering prayer, modes of going within. These are all ways that we can come into deeper touch with this primordial mind and the sense of connectedness and oneness that the modern science of consciousness so fully supports.
0: It feels so, and this is, this is so compelling, but doesn't it sometimes feel like which comes first, the chicken or the egg, that uh, a person should find their sense of well-being in this lifetime so that their transition into the next experience is one that is um, full of ease and love, and yet at the same time people want a reassurance that when they cross over that it's going to be something as beautiful perhaps as what you experienced, Evan. So and it's almost like the two are intrinsically linked. Is it really about first trying to harmonize and stabilize and nurture the human experience before we can have that reassurance of the the crossover to another beautiful experience. Because people need a lot of reassurance right now. There is a lot of hurt and anger and tumult in the world. And one other thing, there are, and we have to acknowledge this, there are people in this world that don't have loved ones. And so when they cross over, whom shall be receiving them?
3: I can answer that one real quick before the bigger, larger question. Uh, Because in Christopher Kerr's book, he talks about children who die and they haven't had, you know, grandparents and parents who have crossed before them. Very often, though, uh, one example he gives is someone who ran into. The, fr- the best friend of her mother who had passed, who she had met once, and so someone always shows up. Another possibility is that it's a relative that you don't remember that you had, potentially a sibling who passed before you knew they existed, mm-hmm. an uncle who died before you were born. Those relatives
0: show up and you recognize them. This so everyone has a support system waiting for them. Whether Nobody he dies, dies alone. Nobody
2: dies alone. The, Nobody. The, the spirit guide world is absolutely full of, of souls that are there to help uh, in that transition. And I think that is really the important lesson that people can glean from a deep study of the near-death experience literature, not just the, the modern literature, but going back uh, thousands of years. For example, the books of Gregory Shushan, which I highly recommend for some of these earlier cultures and their NDE experiences. Uh, but what you find is the backdrop, uh, you know, 90, 95% of these tales, no matter what, the kind of end of life scenario or the near death scenario that put somebody in that condition to come into that knowledge, you find that it's one of reassurance that people come back with no fear of death. It's because they realize death is a transition. It's actually being released from the shackles of the prison of the physical brain and body and this kind of myth of being in a here-now and a sense of self. Uh, when we're liberated from our, our physical body and brain, we come into a much kind of grander and more beautiful, more interconnected, more purposeful, meaningful world. That's why indie ears come back so full of hope and are transformed in their very lives, and that, that very same kind of knowledge can filter out to the rest of the world who has not had an NDE2, as we've shown in our workshops using sacred acoustics to help people get into deep transformative states.
3: Well, it's really interesting, too, Allison. You mentioned, I think, somehow that we can prepare for this by being in touch with that spiritual aspect of ourself. That spiritual aspect of ourself is primary. That's there all during the time that we're inhabiting this physical body. And when we leave the physical body behind, that's what continues. So getting more in touch with that is highly critical, not just right before we die, but throughout our entire lives. Irvin mentioned how he has this constant connection, how he, when he opens up, can just connect to this amazing intelligence of the universe that he can then put into writing. We all can do this in our own way. And this really speaks to kind of, you know, we talk a lot about, or science talks a lot about mind over matter, but it's really spirit over matter. When you can get behind the mind, the thoughts, you touch a different aspect of yourself. We sometimes call this the neutral observer, the inner observer, it's that part of you the inner soul, there's many ways to look at it. You spoke very eloquently, Allison, on getting in touch with that inner world. And if it's spirit over matter, ultimately that top-down causality, as Emmet would say, that everything starts in the spiritual realm, and then to the mental realm, and then the physical realm. And so if that's really the case, and this is the uh, philosophy of metaphysical idealism, if that's really the case, then getting t- in touch each of us individually with that spiritual aspect of who we are becomes highly critical in managing our unfolding reality and so you can call this spiritual health and the two aspects of spiritual health are first feeling that connection to something greater first your family unit your greater community do you have acceptance do they love you do you find your place in that world but then going beyond that that greater one mind or one heart one spirit that we're all a part of do you feel a connection to that That's where you get into touching that divine aspect that we're all a part of, and we can all learn to touch that in all those different levels. The other aspect of spiritual health besides connection, is feeling a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. So, Allison, you're speaking of the despair in the world. Like, why are we here? What is our purpose? Finding that purpose, finding that meaning of why we are here. Each of us individually will find that in a different way. Many methods to do that. One way we recommend is through Sacred Acoustics audio recordings that bring the brain into a quieter state of awareness so that your consciousness can be set free and kind of released from the shackles of the physical body. Your physical body is still here, you're connected to it, but you gain this broader perspective that those who have near-death experiences gain during their near-death experience. We can all attain this same kind of knowledge by going within, focusing on our spiritual health. Finding that meaning, purpose, and connection with others. That's what's critical to life.
2: And a a little hint (laughs) is that a huge part of this, obviously, is realizing that that running stream of thoughts in my head Uh, You know, that's not Evan Alexander. So many of us identify with that little ego voice, the linguistic brain in our head, that running critic that uses fear and anxiety as its main tools. And what I learned early on in my meditative experience after my coma was to let that little voice in my head state a request, make an intention, but then he goes into timeout. (laughs) Uh, because there is far grander wisdom that I, I can thin the veil and allow this kind of seeping out and getting away from this illusion of the here now and this sense of self into a broader sense of connected mind connected purpose, and that's one where kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance for myself and for others in all of my dealings is the ideal path forward. It's one of the higher good on being of service to others. This is where so much great reward can come in our very polarized and egocentric society that has often great trouble for individual members to find a purpose for being. But as you realize how much we can help uh, those around us, the least, the last, the lost, the refugees, let's really help all of our fellow beings and, and live this life out of love. Because that's what NDEers come back and tell us over and over again is the binding force of love is ultimately what brings purpose and meaning and any kind of transformative abilities to this life that we're living.
3: And there was another example you you bring up a very interesting point Allison, when you say some people don't have love in their lives and christopher kerr speaks about a woman a grown woman who had lived a whole life She, she didn't have love she had married she had had children but something had happened when she was a young child something had happened that kind of detached her from even this capacity to love but it was in that death process that she found it. And so none of us will be left behind. No soul will be left behind without that feeling of love. It is there for us. If we don't have it in our lives and we miss it, it comes back to us during that
0: death process. That we can all be assured of. This is just as full and rich as can be, and I want to, you know, I, I'm going to ask Fred in a moment about his thoughts relating to consciousness and and all that we're talking about here, but I do want to point out that a previous guest on season one, Michael Tobias, uh, we were talking about um, the sixth mass extinction that is talked about now that the world is going through and this may be it, uh, and I was referring to it as perhaps a sixth mass extension if we could shift our perceptions, and i I'm wondering if that is applicable, because as we're talking about the death, and I don't like that word necessarily, but the transformation of a human individual, can that also apply to a civilization, to an entire planet? But before you answer that, I want to swing it over to Fred, if Fred is there. Fred, are you there? Yeah, no, Fred is not there. Fred is in the vortex I right am, now. I am. I am. I'm just oh,
4: uh, got my. Uh, there is Fred. Don. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then I want to ask um, Irvin. But Fred, can you expound um, on your experiences of what Evan and Karen are talking about in consciousness and transformation and the Asian cultures and their perception?
4: Yeah. So first of all, my own personal experience, um, nothing dramatic meditation and of course later on you understand what happened in meditation both in the the, the eastern tradition and what happened to meditation in contemplative science but the meditation that i have brings in um, that you have new ideas and these ideas are not my ideas i'm very sure because not my thinking process i'm an engineer so the first experience is you have ideas that's coming from somewhere. It's very obviously, because there's no thinking process, but you believe those thoughts that has arisen. And so gradually there'll be a conflict because your thinking process and those are popping up, it's distorting, and then you see the world differently. And that's very disturbing in life because you have it all worked out in the framing. It's all in the place, hunky-dory, it's going well. And these thoughts are coming up and you're seeing the world differently and it distorts all your relationship because everybody put you where you are. You put yourself where you are. There's a little thing that everything's a little box is working very well. And now you have something happen to you. But you cannot unsee what you see because the way you see the world starts changing. And you don't have the framing to deal with the way you see the world. And your framing creates a conflict. And now you have to go out and figure out what the hell is happening. Why are you are seeing the world that way? And how are you are going to think about it? And that's when you start discovering and you're going deeper. And now you understand. A lot of things happen in meditation. All the new wiring is happening. But you do not have framing. You do not have framing towards your experience. So you can't work with it. And yet, you cannot unsee what you saw. And so now you need to go and investigate. Because to do work, you need a framing. Now you have to reframe. Now you have to understand. Now you frame your experience. Then after a while, you do meditation. You are going through a process of framing your experience. And I give you whatever language you use, it doesn't matter how you frame it, everything is true. That's how the universe, even what is not true, is also true, and nothing is not true. And so you start framing it and you see, okay, now I see it this way. Then you start understanding there's a difference of thoughts. There are thoughts without thinking. And now you're gonna actually sit with those thoughts and get the thinking going with the thought. So there's a training process. And then as that, you go in and start realizing your different bodies as you go back into deeper consciousness. Because everything's energy, so there's cycles. And so everything follows that rhythm. And you start seeing death is nothing but a cycle. So the book of bottles, the book of death, is not about you dying. It's about you're always in transition because everything is vibrating. Everything is always in transition. And between the transition, you always live and die through the transition because they're called cycles. And death is not a physical death. Death is constantly cycle of rebirth and dying. When you start understanding that, you have a different process. So the first thing is when you're meditating, you soon have to confront yourself. Then I said, suppose in mythology that's hero of the thousand Faces. You start breaking down your attachment. You start having feeling that, oh man, I don't need to avoid it. I don't need to confront it. It is what it is. And so you start going through a period of courage, which is facing yourself. Then as you go on a it, you start receiving more information, you're comfortable. Then you go to what um, Joseph Campbell said, the rainbow warrior. Now it's like in the Christian sense, you hear your calling. It's calling you. The source is calling you. And it's helped you unveil further. Then your framing starts changing because now you know what is calling and what is not calling. And you'll find that the way you do things change because calling is not missionary. Purposeful missionary is very tiring. Calling is energizing and easy. The difference is lack of resistance. Lack of resistance without stress is when you know it's a calling and not your imaginary purposeful seeking purpose of mission.
0: Well no. said. Is that? Is that? I'm just curious. Is that what Irvin experiences? Irvin, is that the dynamic that you experience when you said in the beginning that uh, is it like a a calling for you that there's nothing that you have to try to do that this source connection is just there, just fluid and available to you.
1: Well, if you open up to it, I think the evolution that is in the universe. That makes it makes that makes it brought from the initial chaos after the Big Bang to a coherent and complex uh, set of entities that are arising in this universe. Some and they are all conscious from the very beginning. That the very beginning they were perhaps only sentient. They're, they have a feeling for the rest, but that feel is there in every quantum particle. Is there in us? If you open up to it, then you open up. To to evolution, which is love, which is another word for love. Because love is the way that you drive to bind yourself together. You get to you get going together into the next level. And that is in us, whether we like it or not, that is in everything. This is why life strives on this planet, even in the of fires and the most difficult conditions near volcanoes and deep seas, life is arising. And life is flourishing whenever it can, artificially we block it. Mm. That was, that's a big mistake of, of the human race, not looking at, at the life as the, as the original motivating force. But life is something that is in us, we are living beings, and we are part of this Gaia system, life on this planet. This is very likely probably part of life in the universe. So, that is something that comes naturally, that comes through the nearest experience, that comes through the living experience, that comes through art, through meditation, through physical love, through belonging to, working together with people and experiencing partnership. This universe is an evolving, love directed, oriented universe. We just have to allow it to take hold of us. Then we will move with it. The big mistake that was generations prior to us have been making is to disregard this and to think you are separate, you are above nature, you are above all processes that go on in, in the physical world, and we can do what we want. We are, have to be back together into that evolving one universe, one consciousness, as Eben says, as Schrodinger said, as, as Einstein was saying, One universe in a one humanity. There we are. We are recognized our oneness again. And we know that the way to find the oneness is through this unconditional love. If you feel it, you're you're on the way to it. You can articulate it, but even if you don't articulate it, it's there. So great experiences like Eben is recounted, like Fred is recounting, uh, giving a testimony to that's the true being of who we are. We are evolving deep individuals, deeply connected individuals, connected to each other, to nature, to to the planet, to all life. We are part of a holistic, holographic universe where all things are present in all things. So it's a wonderful, it's a miraculous experience, but it is the true life, it is the true universe.
0: This is a miraculous experience indeed, this experience of being what we call human. But I want to talk to all of you about something that is not natural, perhaps, or it's going to become natural. Recently, molecular biologist, I believe his name was David Sinclair Sinclair from Harvard University, he ran, it's been reported, a very successful um, reversal of aging in all of the 17 mice that were part of this uh, laboratory experiment. Um, and it's gotten a lot of news. And he has stated unequivocally that within many of our lifetimes, we are going to certainly prolong immeasurably the lifespan of a human being, if not eventually have an endless lifespan. I'm not quoting him directly on that, but that was the gist of what I had heard. So now I want to ask all of you, why do we even want to live forever? Is it a fear of what we call this word death, or in in the old paradigm sense, uh, or is it um, a genuine desire to continue to explore this experience of being human? Because those are two different perspectives on the notion of existence. I love to hear, let's start with Evan and Karen, and then we can circle around to uh, Fred and, and Irvin, what your thought is about the lifespan, living eternally. Well,
2: the, the point I would make is, uh, you know, the, these 14 years of study after my NDE and trying to make sense of it in a modern scientific uh, setting uh, is one that very strongly uh, says that what the world of science is, is coming to tell us is based on uh, you know, quantum physics based on parapsychology, all the evidence for non local consciousness like telepathy, precognition, pre sentiment, uh, psychokinesis, etc and uh, certainly through the hard problem of consciousness and philosophy of mind, the binding problem, these are all issues we brought together in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, to make the case for idealism, which is basically this notion that there's some aspect of us that does seem to live beyond the death of physical bodies and to be much more of an eternal soul than anything that we might postulate uh, you know, if the brain were the creator of consciousness, but uh, all the evidence is showing us it's not, that it's a filter that allows in this primordial consciousness that fully opens the door to our conscious awareness uh, existing beyond the birth to death cycle of one incarnation. Uh, so, in essence, the, the science of consciousness is already showing us that in many ways, we, we don't have to fear that oblivion that materialist science uh, worships and tells you is at the end of a lifetime because they believe the brain creates consciousness. But when you realize it's only uh, a filter that allows expression of consciousness in a very limited fashion you realize, well, if you can get in touch with that more primordial aspect, you're certainly in touch with uh, something that extends beyond the death of a physical body.
3: It's interesting because Raymond Moody, who kind of coined that phrase, Life After Death, he wrote that book Life After Life in the 70s he says now that he's in his 70s, he looks back at his life and he he tells us, you know, I'm kind of tired of being Raymond Moody why would I want to continue this personality for much longer I feel like I've exhausted all you know, aspects of who Raymond Moody is, and yes, he's in his 70s, probably people when they get into their 80s, 90s, Irvin, I don't know how you feel, uh, that maybe. Maybe you are ready to leave this personality behind and go through that transformation to the next stage. Because if you're always that same personality, where is the growth? Now where I would come in and say is maybe this type of technology to extend a physical life might be very handy, for example, for parents of children who you know would like to be here to raise their children, for example. I can see applications for it. Um, I can see applications for extending your lifetime if say you're some brilliant scientist like Einstein and you're just so close to that theory and maybe another 10, 20 years might be that breakthrough. On the other hand, your consciousness continues anyway. And so where is that opportunity for growth if you just stay in that same body? So very interesting uh, how that kind of scientific uh, evidence really depends on your worldview how you look at that such results because if you believe only the material world is real this is like a miracle that you can continue physical life but if you believe that spiritual life is eternal it becomes less of a of a, uh, a glamour sort of thing so. I would
2: simply <laughs> add also that i 've come to realize that any kind of physical mental or emotional health is ultimately Spiritual health. So, in other words, from my perspective, you know, you, it's not about playing these tricks with trying to, you know, change t- telomere length or other techniques to try and reverse aging, but living more from a, a spiritual base that fully supports uh, kind of your evolution and transformation as a sentient being, contributing to the to the evolution of all consciousness. That maybe, uh, you know, some uh, apparent health and healing and wholeness comes from that very process.
3: Certainly, your mm-hmm healing and wholeness came through the case study done by independent physicians who weren't involved with his care. They say the only explanation for his full recovery. recovery is having touched that spiritual realm. There is no medical explanation.
2: And that's what actually convinced the peer reviewers of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases to publish that case report back in 2018 because they realized, oh, you have a potential explanation for this he had an NDE and that might explain this because other cases of NDE have profound healing associated like Mary C. Neal and her warm water drowning and and, uh, uh, Anita Morjani and her lymphoma. Uh, In my case, those are three very powerful cases of miraculous healing in the modern setting.
0: Indeed, the world has really been out of balance. And I think perhaps, I don't want to assume this, but Fred, that maybe in the Eastern cultures there's been much more of a propensity towards understanding these realms than in the West, uh, because we're really coming into that uh, in the Western cultures in a, a deeper way. I know it was very popularized with the Beatles when they went to India in the 60s, but in the Asian cultures, has this been very deeply embedded since epochs,
4: the notion? Uh, yeah, that? yeah. It's uh, from the end of time, but there is a period um, of uh, transition from the, um, the era a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. I think about India was uh, colonized for over 200 years. And um, so there was a period of uh, the Asians shifting over to Western thinking and moving in to the material uh, era. But uh, the Chinese um, understand um, that Tao is called the, the real person, the true person. When you want be a true person, you can live forever. So why would you want to live forever? Because you have a job to do. In the, in the physical realm, you come here to evolve. Until you finish your evolution in the physical realm, you can stay here. But if you have finished your job, you can't stay here because your energy body is such as high frequency. You can't stay in the physical body anyway. So in the Yellow amber Canon, it says how we are made. We're not the father and mother falling in love and the making of the love. We're not made. We're made from energy. And how energy and different energy and spirit creates a physical body and the mind And how we get lost and become ignorant of reality because we have centuries, we have physical separation. And then actually when the journey back, you gradually, even you're back and you understand you're connected, you haven't evolved enough to go beyond that. And so you come here to stay until you finish your job evolution and you cannot stay here anymore. You've done. And so there's a reason why are you here? And the fact we don't know why we're here, but in Eastern tradition, we know the different realms of you to work and even become the true person. You need to evolve beyond the true person into the ultimately higher being, the 10th realm of being that we have to come here to do. And the 10th realm, you no longer can stay, you leave. So... Uh, as we move back the journey, back to what Urban was saying, the holographic reality moving to the holotropics uh, attractor, which is moving to the source, you move through different stages of, of realms and being and dimensions. But everything followed the energetic group of, of, of cycles. And you now become very fine. It's nothing as you think about love is a feeling. It is a sensation, but this sensation is an energetic sensation. It's nothing you watch like in Hollywood. And love is just a realization of understanding. We are whole to begin. And when you're whole, we call it love. And love is a sensation, but it's not really a sensation. It's a wisdom, it's an energetic sense, but it's nothing as we think love is. Because you can write as many books about love, you can never understand love until you can experience holism and ability to see the systemic presentation in the realm of the physical three dimension. And so and these things are well defined and explain the different bodies that we come and you can actually experience in meditation as you go through the, the different bodies and return to information source. And in those area, you have different shades of integration and different realms. Yeah, so it's a long story, but it can be scientifically explained. But there's a lot more details in the Eastern culture.
0: Indeed, and it's it's an extraordinary love story, if you will. And I want to just swing it back for a moment to Evan and Karen on the note of love, because <clears throat> I'm wondering what it's like for someone like you, Evan, to return from such an intensely loving, a transcendent experience back into the rather density, if we will, of the earthly realm and what it's like for you, Karen, to be in a love relationship with someone whose experience of love was perhaps even beyond the realms of love that we understand as a human being. I would love to hear about this dynamic from both of you.
2: Well, it was uh, the greatest gift of the experience was to bathe in that love, to uh, become one with that infinitely loving and wholesome uh, God force, and to realize Uh, you know, so much uh, my own particular religious upbringing in many ways was very limited because it did not fully allow for this uh, beautiful expression of love and kindness, compassion, mercy, uh, and bathing in that ocean of it in that realm uh, was a tremendous gift. But I think to me, one of the, the greatest messages of the last uh, you know, 13 and a half years of trying to interpret this since my NDE has been my relationship with Karen, and uh, what I realized when we first met, uh, you know, over eleven years ago, uh, was a very strong kind of sense of calling. Uh, as it was put earlier uh, today. And it really was like a shared mission. And uh, that binding force of love was a much more practical thing when I realized, yes, that's about acknowledging that oneness that we share, but can also share with the world at large. And Karen was a tremendous spiritual mentor to me uh, in really kind of uncovering that. Because initially as an NDEer, I thought, well, you can't really bring that love fully back to this world. But I believe Karen has shown me that that is indeed possible.
3: Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I had spent my entire life curious about love and uh, I i saw it some places but not others and i wanted to have it and i kind of went through a process in my childhood of rejecting it uh through the divorce of my parents and uh so i kind of was living with the absence of that love but i was so curious about it and fred i read books about it and you're right reading about love you're not going to learn it you must experience it and so i thought about it i read about it all of those things i had relationships with, with men and uh, thought I was in love, but it was mostly up in my head, this love. And I was making intellectual decisions that I loved somebody and I knew that's what I was doing because mm-hmm. when I met Evan, it was completely different. And so I had spent the couple years, two to three years up until meeting Evan, really generating lots and lots of individual personal experience I had touched that love. I knew what that unconditional love felt like. I had felt it bathing my body. I don't know if it was the same intensity that Eben felt. I can imagine his was much, much more intense, but what I felt was pretty intense. When Eben and I met, we felt a resonance with each other. It wasn't a thought. It was a heart-centered connection, and I had been studying heart math, how the heart actually functions as a tool in your body to sort of, uh, it, it expands and contracts based on your emotional state and in a, the workshop we were both attending where we met we were directed to walk in and out of each other's energy fields and feel where we felt a change and so as I would walk towards Eben I would feel this change when I got to a certain point and some would say well that's the electromagnetic field of the heart some would say well that's the energetic aura of the body that you're feeling whatever you want to call it when I t- Touched that field of Eben's, my heart shifted. And I was familiar with that feeling, uh, fortunately, and it shifted in a way where I couldn't find words to explain it. But Eben did. And in that moment, we were supposed to tell each other what we were feeling. And he says to me, I feel that the yin and the yang of our hearts has joined as one. And I said, Yes, that's what I feel. It's so hard to find words to describe what you're feeling. And very often, I like to use um, words that we use to describe light. So sizzling, uh, flaming, uh, shimmering, glistening, all of these words we have for light. That's what love feels like to me, glisten and radiate. All those words can also be used interchangeably with love. And so as we've gone through our life, this wasn't a choice to get together. You know, we talk very much about free will. That was part of it. My choice was to stay, because it was very easy for me to run away from such a relationship like this, despite... Uh, what we were feeling, the external world wasn't so supportive of all of this, and my first instinct, my free will would have taken me away, but it was that, I swear, that divine destiny, that feeling of belonging together that made it all possible, and as we've gone through our years together, it's a very different relationship. I completely accept everything about Evan. He completely accepts everything about me and so I'm a very direct person I can be very blunt it can come across as cruel as some of my former relationships might tell you or even my daughter but when I'm very blunt like that Evan just hears me for what it is and it is I used to say it was a miracle that he accepted me for who I truly was but that miracle that's love and so when we came together we both had developed in our own way this capacity for love and it resonated in a way that I had never, ever felt before, and I do believe that we make love to bring a child into this world. When ideally a couple is in a loving situation like we are, and you can bring that love into the creation of a a potential human body that then can be grown within this environment of love and support and acceptance. If all humans in the world ideally could bring their children, create those material bodies with that loving energy, that would make this world a better place. So that's, that's what I have on that. Exquisite,
0: exquisite. Even you, Eben, I keep calling, I don't know. I start calling you energy. Forget even and Eben. I just call you energy. What would you like to say about that?
2: Well, the only thing I would, would add, Karen put it all so beautifully about our yeah. relationship, but just for those who have not read Proof of Heaven or heard my story, important to point out that I was put up for adoption when I was 11 days old. My mother was a 16-year-old, unwed, uh, and uh, that was my start in life, and I spent four months in that Home because she was unwilling to sign the papers to give me up
3: cuz she loved him
2: cuz she loved me but she couldn't let me go and that 4 months was a long time to be in a baby dorm and not bonding with a uh, Parents, But anyway, so my struggle through much of my life was whether or not I was worthy of love. And uh, it all originated with that adoption abandonment. In many ways, I would like to say all of us share that kind of original wound of abandonment because we've been kind of set, uh, you know, um, adrift here in this material world. Uh, with you know, our, the memories that we might have that then get covered over with this program, Forgetting, uh, but that the soul line is uh, in many ways obscured and we get kind of cut off from the memories of that heavenly realm before this life. And so in many ways, my adoption, abandonment wound uh, can be presented as a kind of a universal wound that we all suffer in some ways coming into this world, being separated from that love of that world and of the, of the spiritual realm. And that's what we can recover uh, in this lifetime with this kind of work and understanding. And it's a real gift to appreciate the power, the binding force of love in bringing wholeness and healing into our lives.
0: Absolutely true. Irvin, don't you think that this world, in a sense, needs to be adopted by a loving parent energy? (laughs) And and would you like to adopt the world, Irvin? How would you like to adopt the entire world population in an embracing, loving energy? Because we really need that, don't we?
1: I'd like to adopt consciousness. Consciousness because what we call our consciousness is a holographic projection of the One Consciousness. Mm. Let me just come back for a moment to this idea of why should we prolong our presence on this earth in, in physical existence. Because this is not a passive happenstance universe. It's a universe that couldn't have been developed, evolved through random interactions. It's a highly oriented universe, and, and, and it's a one universe, a one physical aspect, one, one consciousness, a spiritual, a psychic aspect. And the way we communicate with the one consciousness is through our body while we are alive. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we improve our relationship on this earth through love, Our consciousness evolves, but our consciousness is part of the one consciousness. It's a holographic segment of it. So we can, through our physical presence in this universe, actually evolve the consciousness of the universe. Our task is to do that. Our task, in in other words, is to bring consciousness into the physical realm, into this earth, to bring it, because then we bring its binding energy, we bring its love to it. But we have to be alive to improve this. Consciousness then remains. What we did remains. Our body disappears, but our consciousness remains. It can reassociate, associate as Ian Stevenson and many others have been showing, as Eben was talking about, has re with other physical bodies, with new physical bodies. But while we are physically here, we can evolve the the consciousness of the universe. And it's it's a mission, it's a task. We are here to help bring consciousness into this planet. And this is part of the universe. Our consciousness is one. Our physical universe is essentially one, as we now know, it's all interconnected. So we have a task. We have a task while we are here to fulfill. When we better ourselves, when we love others, when we work together and and we create a field of connection and of love, we create a higher level of consciousness. That's our contribution, Contribution, our cosmic contribution of the species. We are conscious not by mistake or by chance. We are highly level, high level consciousness individuals because we have a task to do. We have something to do. And we need to be here to do that for as long as we can possibly be here. And then it goes on and others will take it over. over. But our lifetime is a lifetime of contribution to the evolution of cosmic consciousness. That's, to me, that is the bottom line.
0: That is such an incredibly important, vivid bottom line. And that's why, again, today's episode and future episodes, it's so important that we encourage people not to feel that it's taboo or something is wrong with them if they're having these phenomena that are surfacing more and more. I mean, I'm hearing from so many just private discussions with people that I know personally or just a meeting by happenstance who are having experiences of the. Uh, shall we say, the paranormal, or things that are not attributed to our normal, whatever normal is or ever was. And it's important that, we're, that we somehow help each other to be okay with this, because at, at least from my understanding, it's almost like we're expanding from this, more constricted version of human into this new, quite dynamic uh sense of being a human, multidimensional. Do you all feel that this is an important kind of mission to help one another birth in in one another, this expanded sense of human?
2: I think or, the very survival or, of human mind necessitates this, this awakening, uh, away from the false sense of separation that is inherent in materialist thought that's been disproven in science for the better part of a century. Uh, we're now uh, emerging into a more quantum informed uh, vision of kind of the nature of consciousness and fundamental nature of reality uh, that's much more about the oneness and about our responsibility to each other and to the planet, to our fellow species. Uh, this is really about overcoming the uh, kind of travesty of that false sense of separation of materialism with economic polarization, corporate greed, warfare, violence, etc. Uh, I mean, this is just in the nick of time for Homo sapiens to actually become wise, uh, and that's what I think is so essential about this awakening uh, now.
0: Absolutely, Karen. Oh, what I'm sorry. I just heard you're... About,
1: this, about Becoming wise, this is. But my sense is that this is the task. This is the opportunity. This is the time on the of the history of humanity on Earth to make that shift it's a, it's what i call the upshift and the chaos that we experience is a means to it is It opens the gate to experiencing and to living that oneness it is coming now despite or even through and because of the chaos that and the and the disharmony that that we experience beyond is this larger harmony that's larger oneness, that larger integration that is the hallmark of coherence of all living things. This is the time. We are living in a period of potential possible upshift, and we are entering on it. There are signs that we are entering on it. I wish to dedicate all the rest of my life to that, but I know many people are dedicating their lives to this, like Aben does, like Joe does, like, like Fred does. I think this is a fantastic time of reawakening to the oneness of who we are. One consciousness, one humanity, one planet. We are finally beginning to realize it and we're beginning to make it.
0: Okay, I want to take this exquisite moment and swing it into a musical note. And I want to start by asking a final question to you, Karen. Um, You've spoken before about, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, the binaural beat and how the brain can calculate the frequency between two other frequencies and then translate that space between tones into a third sound. So is the brain in a sense a composer, a musical composer of sorts? And can a musician compose music from that third sound and embed aspects of that sound entrainment into, for example, rock music, classical RB soul, and and to, to produce, I guess, this desired thought-free state. Or do does it have to be a specific binaural beat or can it infuse into our musical culture worldwide? Well,
3: let's point out that sound is vibration. And that, as Fred said, is what the entire material, spirit, everything is made of this vibration. So music is a form of that. I would not say the brain is a composer, but it is an interpreter. And so what you just described is playing, a binaural beat is playing one frequency in one ear, a slightly different frequency in the other ear, and the difference between them is translated by the brain as this wah, wah, wah sound. And these sounds have been used for millennia in the form of crystal bowls, brass bowls, tuning forks, gongs uh people uh shamans who play conch shells one conch shell on one side of the room another conch shell on the other we've seen people use the didgeridoo down in australia to create these kind of binaural beats anything that creates that wah 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 sound will entrain the brain into a quieter state so it's no wonder that when we listen to crystal bowls and such that we get into this kind of quieter state they're just so beautiful with all the overtones and the harmonics that come in your body just kind of feels that vibration and it affects the brain we believe it's affecting the lower brainstem the most primitive part of consciousness uh, you know that's part of every uh you know, reptilian brains and. Goes and way back. goes way back. 300 and
2: million years so in evolution. It
3: was wah back,
0: actually. <laughs> <Yes>, wow <wah-wah back. laughs>
3: Consciousness. Uh, it, so that's what's affected. Evan does a good job explaining the what it does with around
2: the body. Right, it originated as a localization circuit. uh, So that if I hear a sound behind my head, it's that that circuit, the superior olivary nucleus complex, which is doing this uh, processing at a very deep uh, level. Uh, And I believe that's why, for example, in the late 20th century, people discovered that binaural beats could greatly uh, influence somebody's ability to have an out-of-body experience or to do remote viewing. You know, a very prescribed way of gleaning information from the universe outside of here, now, in the sense of bodily self. Um, but so, th-
3: these are excellent tools, especially, I think, for the Western mind that. You know we're not used to getting quiet within. No one's ever trained us how to do this and it takes training and so I think of them kind of as training wheels to help us get to learn to recognize those states but not necessarily the end all be all. Um, Some people talk about an inner sound that we can all access this sound current. Some call it the who sound and complete silence can of course get you to tap into that sound but sometimes I know I was one of them, the Western mind. We don't have the patience a lot of times for the many, many hours it takes to get there, and so that's where these binaural beat types of recordings and other types of music um, can help people get into these more expanded states of consciousness. And uh, I know that even rock bands. I know what is that name? It's a band called Fish. P H I S H. That I know people. They follow this band around, and whatever type of music they play, these people are able to get into these ecstatic, expanded states. They feel that connection. They access their purpose for being here. So all types of music can play this type of role. It just depends on the environment, the setting, the listener, and so on.
2: And I would simply add that there is a peer-reviewed pilot study supporting sacred (laughs) acoustics, especially in a busy Manhattan psychiatric press practice for alleviating symptoms of anxiety. Yes. That paper was written by Dr. Anna Yusim. It came out in uh, February of 2020 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, all about binaural beats and the treatment of anxiety. They basically found uh, over two weeks of listening, uh, to 26% of symptoms in the treatment group improved versus only 7% in the control group that did not receive sacred acoustics tones, but received talk therapy alone. But so- that pilot study goes a long way to showing some real power to these tones
3: and so sometimes anxiety alone will prevent people from getting a good night's sleep from getting into a meditative state that anxiety just gets in the way and so some people use these recordings for exactly that and just so your listeners know go to sacredacoustics.com look for the whole mind bundle these are the recordings used in that pilot study and they're drastically reduced um, and also there's a free option so there, the is no, there is no barrier for anyone who would like to try these sounds because you will, ex- we will, you will receive our gratitude for taking the time to quiet the mind, reduce that anxiety because your reduced anxiety helps us. That's what we understand. So anyone is
0: welcome to access those recordings. Oh, beautiful. I think music. Um, Love is the universal language, but I feel music is too, or at least it's a portal, a very important portal, and the vibration, the frequencies that you're talking about couldn't be more needed in every little nook and cranny of this planet. Fred, do you have any any thoughts about the element of music and vibration before we conclude today's absolutely fascinating discussion?
4: Yes. Uh, so, uh, sound healing. When you take a pill, uh, it is a chemical intervention. So maybe at best 20% enter your cells. And then it depends on cell structure, the little microtubular receptor that's linked up to the Wi-Fi system, how it all link. But when you have a sound healing, 100% gets through. And so therefore you will see a big difference. However, <clears throat> sound healing, resonates and gives a certain level of healing but ultimately healing is shifting consciousness so you will see everything's about yourself's healing and ignorance is the disease okay and so because we're ignorant of reality we don't know how this mind body spirit functions and we think the physical body is it and earlier karen was saying no, it's a spirit that work. You got it wrong. It's not body and then mind and spirit. It's actually spirit and then mind and then body. And then, of course, uh, Sir Penrose was trying to see, well, how do you physicalize the impulse of the universe? And I, in 2019, he won the uh, Nobel Prize, working with Stuart Hamra on the microtubular receptor, the little Wi-Fi that every cell has. And so... All these work that's doing science of consciousness, whether is um, Bruce Lipton's biology believes or this uh, microtubular receptor that uh, Sir sort Penrose of and now finally got the physicalization, give us one step understanding of how this, you know, the system works. And we are system within a system within a system, and whole universe is life. So understanding holism will make you see the system. Seeing the system is the beginning of the journey of healing. Thank you.
0: This has been a wah, 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 wonderful day today, speaking <laughs> with Evan Alexander and Karen Newell, a uh, fascinating discussion, and with our hosts, Urban Laszlo and Fred Sow. Uh, I, I really want to thank you all so much, and to our worldwide audience, um, who I, I just know they're eager, even quietly, privately, to feel a sense of comfort and understanding of all the transformation that's going on around them or within them. It's a, a very dynamic time indeed. I also want to thank our wonderful production team led by Nora Cesar, Kenichi Sugihara, Fabrizio Beria, and those many wonderful also at ITEA Institute. I'm Alison Goldwyn inviting you to join us for more podcast episodes and to gift a copy of Dawn of an Era of Well-Being" book to yourself or, or a loved one. It's a great companion during challenging times. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, dawn of an era of well-being is the place to tune in. The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So remember, when building that new paradigm for humankind, let's include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. Thank you for joining us. Dawn of an Era of Well-Being is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute, IT Institute and Select Books. It's produced by Nora Cesar and Kenichi Sugihara with theme music Chimera by Piba DuPont. The book Dawn of an Era of Well-Being co-authored by Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Saul, is available wherever books or e-books are sold. Please subscribe to Dawn of an Era of Well-Being the podcast on Apple or Spotify for more fascinating guests and discussion. My name is Alison Goldwyn, founder and creative director of Synchronistry.com, a future party for the planet, broadcast live worldwide. Wishing you well-being till we talk again next week.